0: We celebrate daydreaming, particularly in music. I was really struck by how many songs there are about daydreaming. And we celebrate it to a certain degree as the key to creativity under some circumstances. But there's also a lot of anti-daydreaming thinking <laughs> out there in the world. And the, particularly the young person, the boy or girl who daydreams in elementary school, is often penalized, maybe even educationally stigmatized for doing that. So how should we think about daydreaming? I mean, is it inevitably a way of squandering time and weakening concentration? Or are there some very good things to be said about it? Probably a mix if I had to guess, but let's do the show after the news and find out.
1: me find the joy the boy I call my own. night comes on
0: all oh, right yes by the way that's Doris day I really you know I grew up kind of hating Doris day and thinking she was the epicenter of kind of cornball 1950s early 60s culture that I disliked and then I gradually realized she's... she just a terrific singer, actually, um, and particularly with sort of American standards, American songbook songs. She often sings them. I don't know, more accurately than a lot of people do. If you want to know how a song really goes, you listen to how Doris Day sang it. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about what she's singing about, and that is daydreaming. Uh, Joining us for the first two segments of today's show, Leslie Jamison, a novelist, essayist, and professor at Columbia University's MFA program. Uh, She inspired us uh, by writing two different essays that were published in the journal Astra, uh, both about daydreaming in different ways. Uh, And she's here to talk about this. Hi, Leslie.
1: Hi, Colin. It's great to be here. I will take any and all excuses and chances to talk about daydreaming, which was part of what writing the essay was in the first place, just an excuse to think about it and talk about it with people in my life.
0: Right. So you, um, in fact, have made kind of almost a practice of talking to people about their daydreams. Uh, You write about your own, but you also write about um, what it's like to ask some people often to get through an awkward moment what they daydream about or whether they daydream. Um, And first of all, does it strike you that all daydreaming kind of belongs in the same box or do there appear to be different categories or bases for daydreaming?
1: Oh my God, absolutely the latter. I mean, part of what, it's funny that you mentioned that uh, I would, sometimes ask people about daydreaming as a way to get through an awkward moment because it's often also a way of creating a yes. different kind of awkward moment. Um, a lot of things come up when you ask people about their daydreams, but certainly one thing that came up for me anecdotally in talking to people about their daydreams, which is something I started to do just conversationally and casually probably about five years ago. I have always been a daydreamer, and uh, but, but as for as is the case for so many people, it felt very private, like possibly the most private thing about me was my daydreaming life. Um, So it felt sort of thrilling and a little bit transgressive to start Talking about it and asking people about it. But certainly, to your question, one of the things that emerged most forcefully from those conversations was like the word daydreaming means radically different things to different people. For some people, daydreams are like little movies that play in their mind in which they are acting out some scene with a person they have a crush on or a person they had an argument with at work or a, you know, they're the star of some little movie that they've written and directed. For other people, one of my friends said, you know, I don't really have a visual imagination, so my daydreams feel more like little radio plays. Another friend said, often my daydreams take the form of images, more like something you'd find in a poem, like my head is full of gumballs or little like silver civil war bullets so even starting to for some people daydreams feel like a distracting oppressive kind of maladaptive form of their experience for other people daydreams feel like a kind of a practice of figuring out with more clarity their own desires, so just like the range of even what is held under this single word was really revelatory and fascinating.
0: Right, and we're gonna talk about those maladaptive daydreams uh, towards the end of the show, but um, when people say uh, there's a wonderful, little vignette in one of your pieces about dining with a couple in Rochester, New York, people you didn't really know. uh, And either to uh, break up an awkward moment or create a new awkward moment, you asked them what they daydreamed about. You asked them about their daydreams. And the wife in the couple denied that she daydreamed. Uh, And after a lot of denials and a lot of Kind of somewhat righteous uh, invokings of the idea of like not having time. Um, her husband murmured something about how he daydreams all the time. But did you believe the woman? I mean, when people say they don't daydream, does that strike you as possibly true?
1: Well, you know, so the daydream denier definitely emerged as a kind of archetype or figure in my conversations. And I, you know, of course, there's part of me that doesn't quite believe it in the way that I think it's difficult for us to believe that a radically different way of being in the world than the one we ourselves experience can exist or be true. Um, I guess I want to say, I believe that I believe I don't know the first thing about other people's experiences. So maybe there is a person out there who doesn't daydream, has never daydreamed. But I also think that probably everybody, I don't know, has daydreamed in some way, shape, or form across the course of their lives, whether that's just a moment of fantasy and in a distraction and more than anything, I was really interested in what were the forces inside that woman in that conversation in Rochester that made her want to vehemently deny daydreaming? Was it the shame of kind of indolence or the fact that daydreaming seems like some, a kind of luxury or privilege and she just didn't have time for it? Was it the shame of kind of wanting different things than the things that she had in her life already. Like, I think there are a lot of different kinds of shame that can come attached to daydreams, either the act of it or the content of our daydreams. And that shame is really interesting to me. Like, why are we ashamed of desiring certain things? Why are we ashamed of those desires that might reveal themselves to us in the course of our daydreams?
0: Yeah, and I I bet, I don't know if anybody's done a lot of cross-cultural studies here, but I bet there are cultures where daydreaming is understood to be a source of creativity. Just in the same sense that, uh, you know, Eric Erickson writes about the idea that in certain cultures, people who we would define as schizophrenic or schizoid and in need need of treatment are regarded as shamans in touch with a very important alternative reality. Um, But I, I think we, to some degree, Uh, labor under that Protestant work ethic idea. That woman in Rochester definitely does, right? The whole idea is I'm busy. I can't possibly be daydreaming. Daydreaming is something you do when you're not focusing on the job at hand. React to that idea.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's exciting about daydreaming, I think, is the ways in which it can sort of liberate an individual in on a small scale or potentially a larger scale from the kind of the grind of capitalism or the kind of expectations that capitalism puts on us. And there was a great book that just came out this January called Thoreau's Axe by my friend, Caleb Smith, who's an English professor at Yale was back in the day, one of my dissertation advisors, but he's really interested in 19th century writing about distraction and attention and how, There are all these ways of talking about attention that go back for centuries where attention is sort of used as a disciplinary force like you should be paying attention kind of a punitive response to people who aren't paying good enough attention um but he's interested in like how can distraction be a a sort of form of minor rebellion Um, and i think daydreaming in that way can be a, a way of kind of reclaiming one's mind from the tasks that one is expected to be conducting. Um, But I'm certainly not immune to the shame of daydreaming. I mean, in that conversation in Rochester when this woman said, well, I don't have any time to daydream, as opposed to feeling like I was some very confident defender of daydreaming, I've f- I found myself in a little flurry of of shame and like, well, well, God, defensiveness. Like, well, I I'm really busy too, but I daydream anyway. And does that make me a sort of um, a person who, you know, there's a shame about productivity, but I think for me, the deeper shame is really about um, can I ever be fully present or? satisfied in my own life if I'm always daydreaming? Does that constant daydreaming mean there's a little part of me that's always yearning for something else? And if so, is that a problem?
0: Yeah. And there's, you know, I I, I thought about many things. I guess maybe I, in some cases, daydreamed about many things getting ready for the show. But I, it did strike me that um, one person who's kind of an anti-daydreaming bigot uh, is Yoda. Because, uh, you know, Yoda is always saying, hmm, A Jedi must have the deepest commitment, the most serious mind. This one, a long time have I watched. All his life has he looked away to the future, to the horizon. Never his mind on where he was, what he was doing. So I could do a better Yoda than that. I was under a lot of
1: pressure. Oh, I was going to say that's an incredible Yoda. That was really good. Sort of a humble brag to say I can do better, but anyway, go ahead. All right, so... (laughs) But
0: And I think that's very much there, not only in Yoda and the Force, but in that sort of idea of mindfulness, Ram saying, be here now, that whole chop wood, carry water, whatever you're doing, be fully present in the task. Uh, and and to me, that's as, every bit as punitive against daydreaming as the Protestant work ethic. I'm way too busy to be daydreaming. I, what is it we have against mental flights of fancy that aren't causing any trouble for anyone else but us.
1: Yeah, I mean I think uh <laughs> I love that idea of Yoda as an anti-daydreaming bigot. Um I think there's I think there's I'm interested in a conception of presence, or attention that rather than indulging in some impossible fantasy, i.e. the fantasy that when one is paying attention, one's mind is never wandering, or the fantasy that like to be fully present inside of one's life or one's experiences means never daydreaming about other lives or other experiences. I'm interested in different conceptions of attention and presence that kind of make room for wandering away and then coming back again as not uh, not as failure but as kind of part of the process part of the thing of course maybe what it means to be attentive is that you're you know going on flights of fancy and then calling yourself back maybe that process of like movement and return is a way that we can conceptualize what attention is rather than thinking of it intrinsically as like the absence of attention and certainly as i you know like all of us try to make peace with my own life, make peace with it in that sense that also makes room for constant evolution or whatever. But it's like, how do I how can I um, understand that fantasizing about other ways of being could just be a part of inhabiting this way of being.
0: So um, our senior producer, Lily Tyson, went out among the people uh, and asked them about their daydreaming. Cat, this is a one. Here is what the people told Lily.
2: Oh my goodness. (laughs) Dinner. (laughs) Honestly, I don't know. I don't really like, if I'm just like, just like, I don't know, just like playing instruments. Like I do a lot of music and stuff. So sometimes I'll just like just daydreaming, like just coming up with like different songs or, or beats or something in my head and hopefully try to remember them and take it back home and just write it down and something. So that's usually what's going on in my head. Yeah.
3: I honestly, I don't think I do. Oh, well, that's not true. I daydream about food. Yeah, all the time. I don't know. I just love food.
1: How um, about writing? Owning a sheep farm in Norway. I like to think that in another life I'd run away and have a bunch of sheep and like learn how to weave wool and make sweaters and have a bunch of dogs.
0: I daydream about lots of things, actually. I mean, I'm built trying to build a, a company, so I daydream about that being a $100 million company in, you know, five or ten years. But uh, there's lots of things I daydream about. So. so that's, you know, there are a lot of different layers to what we hear there. Um, and in some ways, they're all kind of defining daydreaming a little bit differently. Um, but but there, the last guy's kind of interesting, Leslie, in the sense that I think one of the things that he's saying is if you can't picture it, if you can't form a picture of something that doesn't exist... Uh, a level of success that you don't currently have, if you can't imagine what that's like, um I'm gonna sound like Oprah now <laughs> but uh but then you're never gonna get there, right I mean that's that's the secret, you know you've got to be able to visualize something that you don't have, which would be an argument for the creative possibilities of daydreaming,
1: yeah, I mean, so a bunch of different reactions, you know, I love the daydream about the sheep farm in Norway and specificity of kind of learning to weave wool and all that I think there's certainly one way of thinking about daydreaming that has to do with actualization and you you know daydream something and then that's part of making it come to pass as you daydreamed it I think I'm more interested in um, I mean, and maybe that happens sometimes, but I, I also think daydreaming can be productive even when we don't understand that as prophecy or like you daydream something and then it comes to be just in that way. I think that daydreaming can give a kind of tangible reality to the idea that your life can be something different than what it is. And I think just that imagining of an outside and granting that outside or that alternative some kind of specificity can be productive even when things don't come to pass exactly as you imagine them. So like I'm thinking about a friend of mine who I quote in the essay, my friend Emma talked about Um, moving from New York to Los Angeles. And she said she had a lot of daydreams about what her life would be like in LA. And that she felt like there was something productive about those daydreams, even if she understood like, life in LA wasn't going to be exactly how she was daydreaming life in LA. But it made it possible for her to undergo a big change. The fact that she was daydreaming a possible version of life in LA. And I love that, that like daydreaming wasn't necessarily a prophecy, it was more like a bridge.
0: Yeah, and I think also, another thing I thought about getting ready for the show, and I, I haven't seen this movie in many years, but there's a documentary called Marwan Call, uh, and it's a, I mean, not remember all the details correctly, but it's about a guy who, this all really happened, he was, I think, pretty viciously assaulted, uh, just in a kind of a street, you know, being just ja- jacked up in an alley or something, and wound up in the hospital for quite a long time and suffered some brain damage, and he got out, and he started to build this town, this little tiny miniature town, um, and kind of had a World War II two theme to it, and but there was clearly a character that was him and some other characters of people that he knew. I think even his attackers, you know, he managed just to So he kind of physicalized, I think, what a lot of us do with daydreaming, which is kind of try to imagine different possibilities, how things could have turned out differently, or how we come to accept maybe by putting it in a kind of a different context, how we accept something that was very painful to us, but react to that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I love that. I haven't seen that documentary, but I want to. I've just written written it down. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in um, the generative and creative possibilities of daydreaming. And certainly, you know, and actually, I'm specifically really interested in miniatures and miniature worlds as a physicalized form of daydreaming. I mean, I think for some children that begins with the dollhouse or or with other kinds of play figures as ways of creating miniature worlds. Um, you know, my daughter likes to make miniature worlds out of what I had foolishly misunderstood to be trash. You know what I mean? (laughs) Kids can make miniature worlds out of all kinds of things, but kind of acting out different scenarios in those miniature worlds is, um, certainly kind of a a physical version of what happens when we daydream and you know Sigmund Freud who's one of the like great um, theorizers of daydreaming certainly linked uh, daydreaming both to childhood play practices and to the work of the artist I mean part of what he said he gave this lecture in 1907 called Creative Writers and Daydreaming. And he's interested in kind of daydreaming as a form of creative writing that even non-professional writers are engaged in um, or non-professional artists. And I love that conception of daydreaming. It's like a creative practice that, like, in some ways, everybody on Earth is engaged in in their daily lives.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in the childhood aspect of all this. I was an only child, and um, I did I think sort of the boys version of playing with dolls to be very Gender-specific about things in a way that probably isn't cool anymore. But I, so I, I had little plastic men, um, and I liked the little plastic men who had no real identifiable features, like they weren't necessarily soldiers or cowboys or, or whatever. Uh, and I would get them all set up and make up these really elaborate stories of them and, and about them. And at a certain point, it did dawn on me <laughs> that I liked doing that better than going out and finding my friends. Um, that there was a way in which this was. The place where I felt like I was really kind of flourishing and letting my imagination run wild. And, and, but I think also when we're children and people have more control over us, there is, I think, a tendency to either punish or discourage that, right? That, you know, the people who are trying to help you, quote unquote, grow up, your parents, your teachers, whoever, are telling you not to do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I see it with them with my daughter all the time the ways in which she will kind of we have a basement in our home that's kind of her empire or her kingdom and she has a lot of her toys down there and and also a lot of the toys that she kind of repurposes to build her own imaginary worlds um and she'll often say you know i want to go to the basement to play and i understand that part of what it means for her to go to the basement is to travel to a realm where I don't have control or I have less control over what she's doing and what she's playing and what she's imagining. And, you know, I think daydreams for adults in their ordinary lives are also a way of seeking some space uh, beyond the various things that are controlling them in their daily lived experience, whether that's the parameters of their job or the rules of their, you know, primary partnership or romantic relationship or the obligations of being a parent you know daydreams are a sort of basement space where um, you can live a little bit outside those rules
0: <laughs> that's beautifully put all right uh, Leslie Jameson is going to stay with us we're gonna take a little break right now we're gonna come back we're gonna add, add another voice to this conversation and not one that we have imagined it will be an actual person <laughs> What a day for a daydreaming boy, and I'm lost in a daydream, dreaming about
1: my bundle of joy.
0: All right, baby boomers, we played it. You can all relax. Uh, if you were worried about not hearing John Sebastian's voice in a show about daydreaming. With us, Leslie Jamison, novelist, essayist, and professor at Columbia University's MFA program. And now joining us, Jonathan Schooler, distinguished professor of psychological and brain sciences and director of the Center for Mindfulness and Human Potential uh, at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Welcome to our conversation, Jonathan. And I'm going to begin with you, but I, I want both you and Leslie to comment on this question. Is Is there a meaningful distinction to be made between daydreaming and fantasizing? Are they the same thing? Are they then circles that kind of overlap? Are they completely discrete entities? Uh, Jonathan, what's your kind of curbside answer to that?
2: Sure. um, These are all terms that we use um in sort of different contexts and don't really have exactly precise definitions Mm -hmm. and that's true both in in everyday parlance and also in the scientific conversations but i would say that fantasizing is a subset of daydreaming where you're uh engaging in sort of counterfactual thinking about um uh, possible things or even impossible things whereas uh, daydreaming could be uh, a narrative thinking about ideas, thinking in a very sort of conceptual way um, that wouldn't necessarily be characterized as fantasizing. We do find that um, that one major characteristic of um, people's daydreaming is bizarreness. Uh, so some people have very bizarre daydreams and, and that is indicative. So creative indiv- individuals, creative writers, Uh, for example, are more likely to have uh, bizarre uh, daydreams.
0: Yeah, and Leslie, you react to that too. What's what's the distinction that you would make, if any, between daydreaming and fantasizing?
1: You know, it's a really fascinating question. I was really interested in your response, Jonathan, because it helped me understand that I think my own personal daydreaming so often takes the form of fantasizing that I in my personal experience, I sort of think of them as pretty overlapping circles. But I think you're absolutely right that there are these other forms that daydreaming can take. They're just for me, maybe because my practice is narrative, I'm a writer, you know, I I write essays, but I'm, you know, first, I, it, my First, art was writing novels. And so I think that for me, like most of my daydreams take the form of fantasies. And, you know, it's funny because I've actually felt sometimes embarrassed by the fact that my daydreams aren't more bizarre. I wish that they were more <laughs> bizarre than they are. Some, sometimes I feel like, oh, my daydreams are so bourgeois or something. I daydream about have brownstone or something like that, you know. And it, I sometimes wonder if I put so much of my imagination into my creative work that what's left over or my life is a little bit more um uh a little bit more predictable than sometimes I'd like. But I also sometimes wonder if people have very um there's a kind of comfort food quality to daydreams that sometimes can be a little bit predictable or familiar, but that's part of what the um, appeal of it or the the kind of um the self-soothing quality of it can be. But but I would love to hear about the bizarre daydreams that, that, that you've come across in well, your work, your research. Well,
0: Leslie, one of my favorite people in your writing, uh, you talked to a woman who lived downstairs from an apartment where there was a rabbit. Uh, and the woman said her daydream, her perpetual or at least frequent daydream, was just the idea of being that rabbit. Uh, and I thought, wow. That that's cool. You know, I I, (laughs) that shows a a certain leap she's making that I wouldn't know how to make. But and and Jonathan, what do we know? I mean, since it's hard to to identify daydreaming, um, this may be a little bit difficult, but what do we know about how much of our waking lives is spent doing something that could be called daydreaming?
2: Yeah. um, One of the ways that they study that we have studied this and others have studied this is by um, doing what's known as experience sampling, <clears throat> where uh, people's um, smartphones ping them uh, throughout the day and ask them, oh, were you thinking about what you're currently doing or were you thinking about something unrelated to the external uh, context? And uh, generally, the estimates are between 25 and 50 percent of the time uh, people report uh daydreaming or or mind-wandering. We use daydreaming and mind-wandering interchangeably. So a lot of the time people are not thinking about what they're currently doing or the situation that they're currently involved in, but rather their mind is uh, off in thought somewhere else.
0: I I used to work with a guy who would say that, um, he used to say, when I'm at work, I can't stop thinking about sex, and when I'm having sex, I can't stop thinking about work. Um, And there is sort of a sense of of well, wh- where else could I be? What else could I be doing right now? <laughs> um, and and we may cheat ourselves a little bit uh, out of things if we do that. But we also are kind of opening up these, you know, this whole spectrum uh, uh, of other possibilities. So um, maybe we talk a little bit more about the well, Jonathan. I'm going to stay with you for just a second on this. Um, I found growing up in uh, particularly when I was in elementary school that uh, my teachers did sort of stigmatize me as somebody who daydreamed. Uh the, the rap on me when my parents would come in for parent-teacher conferences was, um, he's, you know, he's obviously very smart, he's very bright, uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't focus on the task at hand. He's dreamy, he's thinking about other things. This was sort of all in the early 1960s, and this just wasn't cool. This was all be- delivered to my parents as bad news. And, and my sense from the conversations you may have had with uh, our producer, Lily Tyson, you had a somewhat de- similar experience in, in, in grade school? Yes.
2: um, My first grade report card uh, by Gene Shork started, when I think of Jonathan, I imagine him at the end of the line, five feet behind everybody else, shoes untied, totally preoccupied, and yet completely content. So I've been a a mind wanderer for a a long time. And in in psychology, oftentimes research is me-search. So it's it's really not that surprising that I ended up um, studying it. Uh, and my take is, uh, our take is really that it's, it's, it's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, yes, if you're mind-wandering during a lecture or while you're reading, you're not ex- extracting the information that you're being presented. But on the other hand, we find that about um, 20% of the ideas that uh, creative writers and physicists and um, gate have happen while they're mind-wandering. So, yes, it can be distracting from the here and now, but it also can be a source of creative generation.
0: You know, Leslie, I think the other part of this, or one of the other parts of this dynamic, is if I'm daydreaming in your presence. You know, you you may feel you may feel someone ignored or not fully paid attention to or treated discourteously. I had two different teachers over the course of my life who could tell, just tell somehow when students were daydreaming. And one of them was a college professor who taught in those big, like 200 seat amphitheater style lecture halls. And if somebody uh, everybody experienced this, I thought I was the only one at first. If you were if your mind wandered to use uh, Jonathan's term, suddenly you would realize this guy was looking at you, you know, like looking right at you. It was like he could smell it somehow. But I don't know. What did you find out, Leslie, about how other people feel about the person who's daydreaming in their presence? Is it regarded, do you think, as kind of an insult?
1: Well, it's a really it's a fascinating observation, the way that daydreaming, because it's a form of sort of re- removing oneself from what's proximate, can, can be maybe a... Um, alienating or insulting in different ways. As you were speaking, I found myself thinking about the show Fleabag. I don't know if you- Wait a
0: minute, you... wait a minute. Your mind was wandering while I was talking to you right
1: now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking about what you were talking about.
0: <laughs> that's but, your story. Uh,
1: in, uh, in Fleabag, uh, in the first season, you know, one of the things that Phoebe Waller-Bridges, that act, main actress in that show does, that's so wonderful about the show, is that she'll have these moments where she looks directly at the camera, breaks the fourth wall and says something to the audience Um, so it's a way that she's sort of like outside of what's happening right then and having a kind of meta level experience of it but what's even more brilliant and what you made me think of was in season two as she's like falling in love with this priest she's not supposed to be falling in love with he notices he's the first character who has ever noticed her doing it, having these moments of fourth wall breakage where she's looking at the camera and he says, where did you just go right then? Like, where did your mind go? And that's part of how you know that he's so attuned to her in a way that other people maybe aren't. And I think that, yes, maybe there's something that can be a little bit like I've gone somewhere else about daydreaming right in front of somebody else. But I think there's something... That can be actually beautifully intimate about somebody kind of knowing when you've wandered and maybe being able to ask you where you've gone. And I think that happens in some of my relationships, both the, the defensiveness or insult of like, what were you thinking about just then? And, you know, what an archetypal moment between like lovers in bed after they've had sex. Right. It's to be like, what are you thinking about right now? Which is a way of asking are you still with me? Are you here completely? You know, but, um, but I think that, that there can be something kind of sweet about being able to um, notice those departures and not treat them as a problem, but just as a point of curiosity.
0: You know, another thing that I wonder about, um, uh, Jonathan, is um, I grew up, I was born in the mid fifties, grew up in the fifties and sixties. Um, and there was sort of unallocated time that wasn't even all that easy to allocate in some other way. I mean, it sort of made sense So daydream. Um, It seems as though these days in this very kind of McLuhan-esque sense, you know, we're walking around with an extra brain in our pockets, in our purses, wherever. We have a phone that we can take out at any time. We can look things up. We can read stories. We can read a Leslie Jameson essay, which I was doing today while I was in the waiting room at the doctor's office. I was looking at my phone, reading one of Leslie's pieces. Um, And and I wonder about that. You know, there's almost a contraction of the available cognitive real estate for daydreaming.
2: Yeah, I, I, it's difficult to really assess uh, changes in the overall frequency of daydreaming uh, now versus the past because we have methods of assessing it now that we didn't have in the past. But I think it's likely that periods when people might have been lost in thought in the past, they're now pulling out their smartphones and 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 reading material or or just, you know, scrolling through social media and so on. And I think that that can... Have a cost in the sense that we we don't have as much opportunity just to let our minds drift uh, wherever they might. It also can have um, a possible benefit in the sense that it gives us some really rich and interesting material to to mind wander about. So I think it's really sort of a a delicate balance. And 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 from my own perspective, the. The challenge is to get really quality material uh, when one is uh, filling their time, not mind wandering, so that when they are mind wandering, they have really interesting things to mind wander about. I I refer to uh, curious mind wandering, which we uh, find is particularly associated with creativity and uh, with well being, as mind wandering. And so while it may, while reading uh, Leslie's Uh, paper uh, novels might take us away from mind wandering. It may also give us really interesting stuff to mind wander about to mind wonder about.
0: Yeah. Let's see. What are your thoughts about that? There's sort of a way in which these things do suck up some of our unallocated time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I love, um, I love Jonathan's uh, idea of the, the possibility of all of this like material, these voices, the ways that we're encountering so many other people through our devices, whether it's our friends over messaging, or um, friends and strangers on social media, thinking about all that potentially as a kind of fodder, like, even more traction for a a curious form of mind wondering. Um, uh, And I I definitely feel like it cuts both ways. I think that's the I think that's the generative and positive version of it. The fact that, you know, our our phones and our screens like do give us so much access to the world and in all of its multiplicity and infinitude. And if we can engage with that world creatively and actively there's, it, there's kind of infinite potential there and um, for daydreaming and all sorts of other things. But I also do really, you know, I have, I, You know, we were talking about my daughter earlier, like, I really worry about what will happen to these parts of her that, um, that play in such beautiful ways. Like just the other day, she created all these paper aliens and put them in a blanket that was a time machine. And they were named Lana. And um, and I asked, her, are they going to the past or the future? And she said, they're going to what is happening right now. And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't want this beautiful creature who's putting her paper aliens in a time machine that's headed right to the current moment, which is already like a kind of amazing concept. Um, I don't want I don't want her to I don't want all of that all of that generative fertile stuff that happens in the in between moments to kind of get sucked into a series of screens as she gets older and older. I feel like I'm a as her parent, I'm like a steward of that wildness and that invention. Um, so I, you know, I do think there's a way that social media for me too, or other forms of screen time can kind of feel like a suck more than a generative fodder. But I think that's part of, you know, our task as like human beings in this particular time is to figure out how to be creative and, and do something generative with, with what technology is, um, bringing into our lives. Yeah,
0: I do have to say, I spend a certain amount of time thinking of funny things to put on social media. So I feel that's, you know, that's time reasonably well spent. And Jonathan, maybe one of the problems here is the kind of one size fits all attitude towards all this. I really don't want a surgeon who daydreams. I would like the surgeon, at least while he's surgeoning me, uh, to uh, to be thinking very, very explicitly about what's going on. Um, on the other hand, I might want an architect who daydreams if I were ever in the position to commission the building of a new house or uh, an office building or something. I I might want that. And we do know, I think, just from... In certain kinds of high-pressure performance situations, that you can overthink something. You know, second baseman become uh, unable to throw to first because they just have thought about it too much. They can't. You can't hit a free throw. You can't. Uh, you can't uh, make a field goal. You can't sink a putt because you're thinking so hard about this. So, from situation to situation, from person to person, from occupation to occupation, Jonathan, I would imagine there'd be some pretty significant differences.
2: Yeah, I think that's uh, exactly right. There's really sort of a time and a place for daydreaming, and there are times where it's inappropriate, and you definitely don't want your surgeon daydreaming while they're doing surgery. But perhaps uh, while they're driving uh, home, uh, they might uh, daydream about a, a better way to to do the uh, surgery, maybe uh, not in heavy traffic. Um, so I think that it's not just the occupation, but it's also the time and the place. And and for example, we've, we've looked at pilots and we find that uh, pilots do daydream, but they're very scrupulous in when they daydream. They daydream in situations where, you know, it's on autopilot and there's really not much demand and when they're uh, in the thick of things, they're really able to, to focus their minds. So really the challenge is to uh, daydream when it's not going to majorly... Uh, impair what your current activity is doing and in this context something we refer to as meta awareness seems to be very important which is meta awareness is your awareness of what's going on in your mind and we all have experienced this when we're reading when we suddenly realize that our eyes have been moving across the page but our mind has been elsewhere and so cultivating meta awareness where we're able to notice in important times that we need to bring our minds back seems to be very valuable. But it's also valuable in other situations when it's not so demanding to be able to let our minds roam freely and and explore where they will.
0: You know, Leslie, we're, we're coming to the end of this conversation, but I want to go back to your daughter and the aliens and the time machine. Um, there's a way in which we we do really want to validate some of that. And I think in some of the imaginative culture uh, that we offer children, there are, there are there are those models I know. Uh, Olaf, the snowman in Frozen, uh, is one that you honed in on. Uh, uh, tell us about him.
1: Yeah, um, I was, you know, p- for those um, blessed souls who have not watched Frozen eight hundred million times. Um, Olaf is a snowman who is always daydreaming about summer. And part of the irony of of Olaf's character is that he's daydreaming, of course, about a thing that would destroy him, it would melt him. And I really became fixated on this as an interesting image of daydreaming, that we might daydream about things that actually couldn't sustain us, or that we couldn't, we daydream about a way of living that we actually wouldn't want if we had it. Um, And uh, it seemed to get at something interesting there. Um, So yes, I think that daydreams can be many things, and that the, the sort of just paying attention to that double-edged sword quality and holding in mind what they can what they can give us and also what they can take us away from and it's, it's like a, an an infinite task. Um, but I was glad that it brought me to Olaf the Snowman with a degree of nuance that I hadn't found in him before.
0: All right. Well, we have to stop there. Leslie Jameson, novelist, essayist, and professor at Columbia University's MFA program. Her essays were the launching pad for this show. A Jonathan Schooler, distinguished professor of psychological and brain sciences and director of the Center for Mindfulness and Human Potential at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Let's go out with Olaf.
2: Relaxing in the summer sun, just letting off steam. Oh, the sky will be blue, and you guys will be there, too. When I finally do what frozen things do in summer. I'm going to tell him. Don't you dare. Hey! Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories, and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org W-A-T.
0: Support provided by the Richard P. Garminy Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. And time to see, uh, some, uh, make some thank yous to, to people who don't daydream while uh, where they're doing this show, uh, but I hope have good daydreams at other times. That would be Kat Pastor, our technical producer. Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, and she produced this particular episode. Now joining us for a final segment, uh, Jane Biggelson, uh, an advocate for maladaptive daydreaming who used to experience it. Um, so let's begin there. Uh, your essay in The Atlantic is fascinating, Jane, and it, it, it actually seemed kind of familiar to me, at least in terms of my childhood. You were somebody who was really spending an awful lot of time from a pretty young age, doing what we might call daydreaming. Can you just quickly describe what that was like for people?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And from a young age, I mean, as early as I can remember, I think my parents have pictures from me around three and four walking in circles, and that's how I used to daydream. Uh, I did it from very young. In the beginning, I didn't think it was much of a problem because I did it when no one else was around and I was bored because I would often have to space and walk in circles. And I had read in Leslie's article that motion seemed to facilitate daydreaming for her as well, Um, but not a problem because I did it for distinct limited periods of time. What happened was when I got older, I learned how to do the daydreaming sitting still, and then all of a sudden it turned into a compulsion and it was really like 24 seven.
0: So there is no um, kind of official diagnosis in the DSM-5 or whatever number we're on with DSMs at this point for maladaptive daydreaming. But to the extent that it is something that people talk about anyway, what would be the definition?
3: And so it's not in the DSM, but there are, I think, at least 50 now like empirical peer reviewed articles on the topic. And there is a a definition that we hope to one day get in uh, in the DSM but it hinges on the fact that it interferes in some way with life function, right? Whether it's real life relationships, jobs, education, it's somehow the amount of time spent daydreaming often with very fantasy fiction characters plots. Uh, But the, the most important piece is that it interferes negatively with real life and it's difficult to control.
0: You know, I read a bunch of different things for the show, and I'm not sure what I read in what place now, but I think it was in your essay that when they do MRIs, cranial MRIs uh, of people who are daydreaming, um, there's a way in which it's a little bit like seeing somebody who's an an alcoholic being shown a picture of a martini. There's, There's an addiction component there. Am I getting
3: this even remotely right? Absolutely, you are. Uh, The interesting thing is I think there's only been one fMRI study ever, and that was of me. Um, And I don't think it was ever published because the researcher was actually looking for a concept that I think Dr. Schuler is very familiar with, wine monitoring. And it turns out I was not wine monitoring. What that fMRI machine showed was that I was engaged in purposeful, constructive thought in the same area of the brain and forgive me i'm not a scientist I'm, I'm repeating what the scientist told me she said it was the same area of the brain called the reward center that would that would light up when i was engaged in this fantasy world
0: so to what degree have you been able to kind of get it to do more of what you wanted to do and interfere less uh with things that you you need to do
3: so that happened around 25 years old so over two decades now, Um, I had before that, because remember it started at age three, I had gone from doctor to doctor to therapist who all just laughed at me. They're like, there's no such thing as a daydreaming disorder. There's no such thing as being addicted to TV shows in your head. Um, And I just had to control it on my own. And it was difficult. I managed to meet my world, real world goals and plans. But it was so exhausting. And finally, at age 25, I went to a psychiatrist and he's like, I have no idea what this is, but let's look at what else is in your family. And it turned out a lot of family members had OCD. So he tried me on an SSRI, um, Luvox, which is more often given people with obsessive traits. And within six weeks, the daydream world stops completely. Uh, Since then, I've weaned off that medication, and I do still consider myself a daydreamer, but in no way does it hinder my real life.
0: And I think you wrote that um, other medications have been tried with other people, and sometimes it's a different medication. I guess we don't all all daydream exactly the same way or quell our daydreams in exactly the same way. Maybe for somebody else, it's Prozac,
3: right? Exactly. because. It's not in the DSM, there's no specific treatment just for maladaptive daydreaming, but it usually goes hand in hand with something else, right? With social anxiety, OCD, ADD. So what I I mean, I hear from people from all over the world asking for help. What I usually recommend is that they try to find treatment for other coexisting conditions, since no mental health professional is gonna know what maladaptive daydreaming is. And then by working on that coexisting condition, that could maybe reduce your daydreaming. So for me, I think by removing those OCD traits helped me get rid of the daydreaming. It's
0: probably the last question I'll have time for, but do you miss any part of this? I mean, obviously it was interfering with your life. It was just too much of it, but it was also a world you'd lived in or visited constantly uh, for decades, right? I mean, what's it like to, to lose all that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Very good question. So for the first couple of years when I was on a high dose and I couldn't daydream at all, I did miss it, right? There were just, especially in times of stress or illness, or just even like a long plane ride or a long flight, like those things used to never bother me. They were filled with like fun, creative daydreams. So it was frustrating to not have them. But I, on the other hand, I really loved being able to enjoy the real life in the present moment here and now. I never had that before. Whenever I was out doing anything, half of my mind was always on my daydreams. And so to be able to be out with friends or with colleagues and to really focus on what they're saying and be in the moment was very special. Um, I think I'm in the best place possible right now in that I can still daydream, but it's completely under control. So you put me on that bus, and I'll daydream for hours. But as soon as I'm off the bus, I'm happy to see the people I'm visiting. It's gone from so a being, like, yeah.
0: What well, it used to be a liability now it's a superpower. Uh, that's the best now it's possible just, outcome, right? So Jay is Thank you so much for talking to us, Uh, Jane Biggelson's amazing essay, which I really recommend that uh, you read. When daydreaming replaces real life in the Atlantic, Uh, and Jane Biggelson is an an advocate for maladaptive daydreaming. Uh, She used to experience it. Now she's got it under control.